Are qualified opportunity funds living up to the spirit and intent of the Opportunity Zone initiative? And how should social impact reporting be conducted? Find out next. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. The SoundWest Oz Fund 1 is a project-specific Opportunity Zone fund building three assets in the marina in Bremerton, Washington. SoundWest President Greg Genovese joined me at the beginning of this year to discuss his fund, and 11 and a half months later now, I have him back on the show to give us the update. And also joining us today is Steve Sego, president of the Waterman Group, a community redevelopment, investment, and mitigation company. Greg joins us from the road in Washington, D.C., and Steve joins us from Bremerton, Washington, just outside Seattle. Greg and Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jimmy. It's good to talk to you again. Yeah, Jimmy, thanks for having us on. I look forward to sharing more about uh, our progress and and answering any questions that might help help keep this wonderful opportunity moving down the road. Perfect, Steve. Well, thank you. And and Greg, welcome back. It's it's good to be talking with you again as well. Uh, it's, uh, you were one of my first podcast episodes back on uh, January 2 of 2019 was when uh, your episode first aired. And now we're we're toward the end of the year here, 2019, mid-December. And uh, great, great, great to have you back on. So Greg, to start us off, uh, I want to get a sense from you about kind of what's transpired over the last year here in 2019. How has the first year of capital raising been going, not just for your fund, but but for the industry um, as a whole. Some of the first Opportunity Zone funds were established, you know, early this year or, or late last year once, you know, the zones were designated and we got we got the at least the first round of regulations uh, from IRS. So so could you give us a sense of how that first year of capital raising has been like so far and and our funds hitting the capital raising estimates that the, the federal government had forecast? Uh, certainly, um, and that's a, a good point to to start on. Um, you know, in a word, um, I would probably say the the overall word I would use is the word interesting. And I've been doing a lot of uh, public speaking, and, and I'm asked this a lot. And what always seems to come to mind is, um, and because we're in the holiday season, I'm thinking of Charles Dickens. Um, but if you remember Tale of Two Cities, the first line is, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Um, I don't think it's been the worst of times, but it, there's definitely been some challenges in the marketplace. Um, and it's been the best of times because um, the industry, the Treasury Department, most of the uh, pundits, investors uh, feel that the Opportunity Zone initiative really is something that um, is to the benefit of the blighted areas around the country and those areas that are um, getting a foothold in uh, moving their economics up for the best benefit of their communities. And so the, the term that I like to use is the spirit and intent of the initiative uh, has really um, caught hold for the most part. So that's really the good part about it. The the other good parts are the fact, and I don't want to cover uh, the dynamics of it, because I'm sure you've done that on your podcasts. And, and by the way, not to plug you too much, but I do listen to your podcasts often and um, and, and really respect what you're doing. So it's always a, a I'm very honored that you uh, wanted me on back on the podcast. Well, thank you. Thanks for the kind words. <laughs> you're, you're very welcome. 
Um, but we're coming up on the end of the year, the first year of the 15% uh, exclusion or step up is coming up. Um, and then going into next year where the 10% exclusion or step up will, will take place. Um, so obviously there's some very good benefits, um, Oz fund uh, or opportunity zone benefits that are out there uh, for investors. But the, the really the good of this and the way that our platform and the SoundWest group, SoundWest Realty Capital uh, affiliate have taken this is really from an academic uh, approach. And we're not the only ones to do this. And the groups like SoundWest Group um, really deserve a lot of credit um, for taking what I like to call the spirit and intent of the initiative and moving it forward into an investment-based uh, platform um, that really goes into public-private partnership with the community and also being able to deliver uh, investment returns um, that are accretive uh, not only to the community but to each one of those investors. Um, so it's really, uh, and as you said, I'm in D.C., so to, to quote uh, Benjamin Franklin, it really is something that uh, you can do, uh, do, uh, do well by doing good. And uh, that's always been sort of our, our motto, uh, do well by doing good. And so that's really what the initiative uh, was intended for. And uh, ourselves and um, I would say, you know, a, a good percentage of the sponsors out there really have taken that spirit and intent and move that uh, initiative forward. Um, worst of times side, um, quite frankly, it, it's, it has not been uh, a gold rush. I think a lot of sponsors and a lot of folks felt at the beginning of the initiative that, um, as my good friend who uh, is on the phone with us today once said, um, you know, uh, people weren't backing up a truck uh, full of cash and putting it into opportunity zones. It, it has not been uh, something that um, has hit the marks that even the Treasury Department had felt um, that it was going to hit. The Treasury Department originally had an estimate of around uh, 20 to $25 billion in the first year. And um, you had, I think, just recently had Michael uh, Novogratik on the phone. Um, so I won't go over the numbers um, in as much detail as he did. But out of the 350 funds that are out there, uh, representing about $67 billion of equity, right now, 164 of those funds are reporting about $3.9 billion uh, of equity raised. So that's really only about 5% of the available equity and opportunity zone funds that have actually been raised. Um, so if you look at that number in comparison to the 20 to 25 billion that the um, Treasury Department had thought was going to be raised, most uh, agencies have been reporting that the opportunity zone initiative has raised, have raised about 15 to 20 percent of what the Treasury Department had thought. Um, I like to push that up to probably around 25, maybe 30%, because you also have to account for, Jimmy, the, the funds that are not reporting their figures. But I don't think those figures are equal to the ones that are reporting, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, I, th I think I think what you're getting at is if, if you're hitting your numbers, you're more likely to report than if you're not hitting your numbers. You might be uh, more embarrassed to report, right? Yeah, correct. So um, exactly. So I'm just discounting those by about 25%. So what what we believe and just doing our own pencil to paper analysis, we think there's most likely been there's 3.9 that's been reported. And in all likelihood, it's probably really about 6 billion that's been raised. 
But regardless of those numbers, if they're accurate or not, you're still talking about a differential of 15 to 30% um, of what the initial estimates were. Um, and it certainly is not because uh, that the Opportunity Zone initiative is, is not a good, uh, good thing. So as you recall, uh, Jimmy, back in 2018, um, we all expected in the industry for the permanent regs to come out from the Treasury Department in June of 2018. And what ended up happening, as we all know, is uh, it wasn't until October of that same year that the then proposed uh, rules and regulations from the Treasury Department had come out on opportunity zones. However, with proposed regulations, it really didn't affect the private equity firms or the larger institutions. Most of them went ahead and took advantage of the opportunity zone uh, tax law. Um, but the average everyday investor who was looking to get into the opportunity zone uh, programs or the Oz funds, and this is the the, the high net worth investors, folks that are in the wealth advisory or financial planning community, just didn't feel comfortable. And the due diligence that they put in front of this um, was rightfully so um, uh, to a pretty high degree. And so the comfort level just wasn't there. And as you know, the, the, uh, the regs that are still proposed um, that we're all relying on actually came out in, on April 13th, uh, 2019. So really, equity raising for Opportunity Zones didn't really start to happen, didn't even start to germinate really till May of 2019. And the real traction as far as equity raising uh, started to catch hold around July, August of 2019 and has exponentially grown September, October, November. And of course, we're expecting uh, a large amount of equity for the industry raised in December as it's the last year of the maximum benefit. Right. So what, what trends are you noticing lately? You, you alluded to them a, a little bit when you went through that timeline just now, but, but what, I guess what, what overall trends are you noticing in terms of both uh, Opportunity Zone fund formation and uh, capital raising? Are, are, there, are there any trends that, that, you'd, that you can point to? Uh, certainly. I mean, there, there are quite a few. Um, you know, we have to remember that this is a new asset class. Um, it's a new industry for all intents and purposes, and therefore um, there's always going to be, at the very beginning of anything, um, a lot of turns and twists and you know, honing and, and tweaking to get uh, the industry moved in the right direction for all the right reasons. But I think the two major uh, trends that have taken place is, and if you recall at the very beginning of this, there, there were sort of two camps. There was the there was the large blind pool camp, and then there was the smaller project-specific camp, and what was the best structure to facilitate uh, equity raising. And it's not that one's better than the other. It's just that uh, it, it depends on what your investment objectives are. And uh, for the most part, it was probably about a 90% um, to 10, uh, meaning 90% of the funds out there at the beginning, uh, probably even higher than that, were blind pool funds and a very small minority were project specific uh, programs or smaller funds that are that are actually targeting real development projects um, with pro formas with entitlements with buying land etc actually had a written plan uh, to execute on um, and what's happened is that's really moved uh, 
to almost to well right now from the equity raising standpoint it's not quite 50 50. uh it's about 60 40 still on the side of the blind pool funds but as far as the amount of funds out there um it's now tipped over to the project specific side um, Project-specific funds really have been the, the go-to because you can get a tax opinion. Um, you can something we'll talk about later on the podcast, I believe, is you can get a social impact report, so you can actually prove the spirit and intent of the initiative, and the investor gets to see and understand what they're investing in, and can and actually do their own due diligence. And that has really caught hold with the investing public, and so. One, from an equity raising standpoint, it was kind of it was tough to raise equity uh, in the industry because the majority of the programs out there were blind pools, and generally those were sponsors with a lot of money to to put into the programs. Um, and so it was kind of hard for some of the smaller pro- project specific um, groups out there to get a voice. But as time has gone by, um, that side of the fence has really started to gain traction. And then the second trend uh, really has revolves around the rules and regulations, uh, Jimmy, from the Treasury Department. Um, we are still under what's considered, quote unquote, proposed regulations. Uh, however, those regulations are grandfathered and it's taken some time to for the investing public and for the wealth advisory community to really understand and feel comfortable with the fact that um, investing in opportunity zone funds with per, quote unquote proposed regulations um, is, is safe and there's no um, there's no risk of those regulations being pulled um, so that their fund or their investment um, is hurt in any negative in any negative way so the the two trends that I would call attention to is one the amount of project specific programs that are out there now are dominating as far as the amount of funds, not as far as the amount of equity available. Um, Investors are recognizing that as a clear path um, to a high quality or best in class opportunity zone fund. And secondly, the investing public and wealth advisory community is much more comfortable, I would say starting in September and October and going forward with the rules and regulations. And so with that comfort, um, mo- we, we've seen a, a pretty strong increase in equity raising. Well, that's good. That's a, that's always a good direction to be heading in. So, Greg, you've brought up this this phrase a couple of times on the podcast now: the spirit and intent of the initiative. What do you mean by that exactly? And and in in your mind, are the qualified opportunity funds currently out there? Are are they keeping up with that spirit and intent? Um, good question. Um, I don't want to put myself. I think somebody like uh, you know somebody like the gentleman you had on uh, previously, uh, Michael Novogratik, um, might be a better um, person to ask that question. And um, and the reason is is they do the surveys, as you know, et cetera. Um, I'm a little bit in a bubble as far as our own programs and our own platform is concerned. Um, from an overall standpoint, but I can tell you what my general feeling is based on what I've seen. Um, there, right now, there is a lot of negative press about opportunity zones and opportunity zone programs. Uh, a lot of that is, most people would agree, is politically driven. Uh, however, there is some you know, negative press out there uh, about them. And you know, the term that I always seem to hear is, it's a tax break for the rich. That kind of is the, the calling cry that you seem to hear a lot about. Um, and the fact of the matter is, in 30 years of being involved in real estate securities, 
whenever there's a tax initiative, whenever there's a new tax uh, program put into a tax act, um, it's always ripe for abuse of some of some sort. And so to say that there aren't those out there that are um, abusing it um, and maybe putting programs together that, quote unquote, would be a tax break for the rich. I'm sure that those exist. My own experience has been, at least on the project specific side, uh, in dealing with the wealth advisory uh, community and directly with high net worth investors or private investors, um, is that the majority really has stuck to what I would call the spirit and intent of the initiative, meaning these are areas that need the investment. These are areas um, that that welcome the public-private partnership with the developer or the real estate security sponsor like us. And so long as we are going to do something that's an inclusive, not exclusive, but an inclusive development in the majority of the programs that at least I've seen from my side of the fence have in fact done that, where you can go out and measure um, how many jobs are coming into the area, even during the construction phase, how many, you know, our, our particular site has anywhere from 50 to 100 workers on site um, that are local, um, that are, are not right from the city of Bremerton, but are, are local and are coming in and spending their money there. Um, air, you can measure the carbon footprint from the uh, project once it is completed and stabilized as far as is it close to multi-transportation uh, hubs, you know, things like that. And so although I would say the majority ha do have the spirit and intent of the initiative in mind, um, the platforms I would gravitate towards are the ones that are going the extra mile for the investor, meaning they, they go so far as to get tax opinions on their programs. Um, they, they'll spend their money to initiate a social impact report so that it's not just something that you're saying. If you, you go out there and say you have a positive social impact is one thing, but I think we're in an era that, especially in the investment community with the new asset class, that we owe it to the investors to quote unquote prove it. And so programs that will initiate a social impact report, spend the money to get that updated on a regular basis and actually through metrics show how the project um, is advancing throughout the next 10 years of the Opportunity Zone initiative um, as far as what is, how accretive has it been to an actual uh, quantifiable social impact for the community. And these are things that, you know, just touting ourselves a little bit, these are things that we've implemented into our platform. I don't think we're the only ones, but as of right now, we're the only one that I know of. Now, Greg, your fund has gone the extra mile. And I think you're I think you're right to tout it a little bit. You your fund has been recognized by Globe Street as a top fund for economic revitalization and social impact, and it was also nominated by Forbes uh, for a top OZ fund catalyst recognition. Can you talk about some of those accolades and and other recognitions that your fund has received, and 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 talk about your fund a little bit as well? Now, I I, I would like to hear sure. more about your fund, and and f please feel free to toot your own horn a little bit here. <laughs> Okay. Well, no, I appreciate that. And uh, uh, I mean, thank you. That, thank you for recognizing that. Um, I, I can tell you that in working with uh, SoundWest Group, um, it, it, these, are, these are folks that I've known for many years. In fact, the, the CEO of the SoundWest Group and I have been very close friends for about 17 years. And um, this is the leading developer in Kitsap County, the leading property and asset manager in Kitsap County, which is just outside of Seattle um, it, across the Puget Sound. And as I like to 
talk about this group. They're they're a bunch of do-gooders. Um, they're they're a profitable company. Company. They're the biggest group out there as far as a development uh, company. Um, so they're definitely for profit, but they're a bunch of do-gooders. And these are the people that myself, coming from the real estate securities industry, these are the folks that I want to partner with. As much as we want to talk about our fund, I like to talk about our platform because whether it's Oz Fund One or our upcoming Oz Fund Two and Three uh, and Four it's going to have the same platform. And that is what we do is always in public private partnership with the community. Our first program, which is called SoundWest OzFund One LP, as you mentioned at the top of the podcast is in Bremerton, uh, Washington, which is the fastest growing city uh, in the county. Um, also home of the Naval, uh, of Puget Sound Naval Shipyard and Naval Base Kitsap. Um, one of the key strategic um, uh, sites for the Navy nationwide. Uh, and this is something that we did with, like I said, public-private partnership with the mayor of the town, with the city council of Bremerton, with the county of Kitsap, um, as far as coordinating and having a strategic alliance with these folks, with the port of Bremerton, with the local um, economic alliance called KEDA, which is the Kitsap Economic Development Alliance, and the local uh, tribe because they control the, the shoreline. And so um, part of the Opportunity Zone programs, as you know, is keeping to your 31-month working capital on-ramp. And so you don't, you know, it's one thing to have a good idea. It's one thing to have a good piece of property, but you have to execute within the rules and regulations that the Treasury Department has put on you. And, and you want to make sure that you're doing this with coordination with the city itself um, because we want to hit those marks. We have not had any problems with uh, entitlements or permitting. Um, it's been a, it's been smooth sailing uh, as much as a development project can have smooth sailing. Uh, it has been smooth sailing insofar as keeping to um, our working uh, our working written plan. So the program's done done real well. Um, we probably will probably close the fund out here in in short order. It's a fifty million dollar offering um, with uh, uh, with returns between twelve and sixteen percent projected for our investors. And so putting all of that together um, with the social impact report that we've initiated with the favorable tax opinion, with putting together what we consider um, um, the, uh, something that, that in, uh, inherently uh, adheres to the spirit and intent of the initiative, we've been recognized um, as a quote-unquote best-in-class program. And so a couple months ago, we were uh, named by Globestreet.com in Real Estate Forum magazine as the top Oz fund in the country for economic uh, revitalization and, and uh, social impact, in which allowed us, uh, Forbes to nominate us for their inaugural. We don't know if we've made it on the list yet, but we have been nominated to be what's considered their top 20 fund catalysts. Um, and what they're looking for across all of these accolades, what they're looking for is a cross between sticking to the spirit and intent of the initiative and investment returns with inclusivity uh, of development. And so we're very proud to say that not only our program, but our platform and all of our programs going forward will adhere to these same metrics. Good. And Steve, you've been very patient. I want to bring you in here now. Greg, you hired the Waterman Group to conduct social impact reporting for your fund. Steve, can you explain exactly what you're doing for SoundWest and, and why it's important? Yeah, thanks, Jimmy. I, yeah, let, me, let me do that and kind of give you some background on how 
we were part of the the opportunity zone uh, designation process and why that's so important to understanding how to identify and then measure social impacts and why we're working with with Greg and, and Sound West Group now. In the early days of the the opportunity zone um, effort after the Jobs and Tax Act was finally memorialized in, in December 2017, we bunch of us were already aware of the opportunity to to explore this further and then quickly move to trying to figure out where and when and why. And and as you know, there's there's a whole inventory of, of what are called the designated census tracts across the country that were considered appropriate. And this this is all based upon the original data and census data from 2010. And and so as we got into that, we we in, in this state, in Washington state and in the region, um, learned quickly how the, the state of Washington was going to make those designations. And uh, every state had a the, the freedom to decide how to do that, and there was there was no real parameters. But of course, uh, the, hopefully the states behaved responsibly, and in the most part, they did it, did it the right way. And in our state, uh, they asked all the counties to come back with some designated zones based upon their own confidence uh, out of in a proportion by a ratio basis to population in in each county of qualified census tracts that should be identified and designated as opportunity zones. Um, and they also gave the tribes in our state uh, uh, the same latitude to identify a zone if, if they felt they, they wanted to do that. Uh, and then the, the remaining qualified census tracts were in a pool of competitive zones. And so when you start that process, and it really does speak to the social impact measurement that we, we decided to, to, to begin at uh, and, and then evolve over time is, you know, it's not just a question of maybe where's, where's the most opportunity to make, make money or how are you going to get a, a, a fund established that's going to attract the most private equity from outside the region? Or, you know, there's a lot of those important pieces, but really it's about which census tracts could be kind of catalysts or, or key components to uh, a more local and regional impact that could be measured through the metrics that, that were part of the original designation that was made for these census tracts. But then um, for the sake of the, the prioritization of the the tracks that we knew were the most appropriate for opportunity zones, how do we kind of define that? So our applications in, in our state, at least, were uh, inclusive of those metrics. So social impact measurements were part of our application process and included local community developers saying, hey, if you know if this happens, uh, we're, we're, we're interested and, and we're going to engage. And, and the local elected officials and the public saying, uh, we're on board as well and, and we think this is a, 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 the right choice. So, you know, to kind of circle back, the, the, the objective is to be able to establish that baseline data, which was really built around the, the applications that were made for uh, the designated tracks that we proposed to the, 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 our state's Department of Commerce as the, the appropriate uh, designations. And in our case, in this region, we had a lot of support from our congressmen and from uh, other adjacent counties who were doing the same thing. And in the end, we kind of got really close to what we hoped we would accomplish. Um, and, and once that was established, then, you know, we were hoping that, uh, as Greg said earlier, there, there weren't truckloads of money backing up, but um, there was the next effort to try to identify what projects and what process uh, would be most effective and most successful to accomplish the objectives of what is, I mean, if you we go back to the genesis of opportunity zones and out of the original 2014 and 15 work that was done by EIG and, and others and, and, and Michael Novogratik and, you know, trying to identify what's the best path to truly invigorate private equity investment in a responsible way, um, we started building that structure. And that's where Greg and his team came in. Uh, and as they started their work, 
recognizing what we'd already had on the table, that baseline data was, so how do we measure this and what does it mean? And, and how does this, how do we speak to a question of, well, you know, there's clear intent and it's not just economic, it's broader than that. How do we know if we, we've accomplished that? How do we measure that outcome? And that uh, then uh, becomes what we're you know, going to address, which is the social impact measurement that we're engaged in now. Right, exactly. How do you how do you measure success in opportunity zones, Steve? Actually, let's let's back up for for a minute here. Can, can you uh, explain to me and and our listening audience uh, what your level of involvement was in the zone designation process at the at the state level there in Washington? Sure. Yeah. So there was a background in, in our, our world that was about how do we do economic development in a responsible way, and the state took some time. Uh, to figure out how they were going to make that selection and recommendation to the Treasury. Uh, and when that was done, we jumped in. Uh, and I say we, I, I worked with local jurisdictions. In some cases, it was a city and their staff or, um, you know, or, or county uh, uh, commissioners to work with uh, the potential economic investors to find out how do we, how do we identify what is the preferred opportunity zone. And, and, and in this case, for example, in the jurisdiction of Bremerton, where, 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 where Greg has his SoundWest Oz-1 project, uh, is a case where there, there were multiple other census tracts that were qualified, but probably weren't the, the best designation. And so we had to make some choices, and I think we did the right thing. And, and it's a question of measuring not just the jobs and the economic growth and the, the benefit, but the, how what we do at that tract actually benefits the other tracks that weren't designated, but are part of a more uh, regional economy. And so we can talk about that too, how important that is to look at the larger picture when you uh, do that, that, uh, that measurement of a social impact statement. But with that said, you know, when we got through the process of, of the designation in our state, um, and then we knew when the, the state submitted to the IRS where we were, uh, at that point, uh, we started continu- continuing to gather that data and started thinking more regionally about what we're doing. And so, you know, it kind of, I always tell people that my sense of that process over that first year was people outside of the ground zero, if you will, of the of the designated uh, zones, people outside of that area, if you could take a concentric circle and work away from it, the farther away you got, the more confident, more interested, more positive investors and, and equity was about the project because people living you know, on ground zero were a little more skeptical, a little bit more, you know, just they'd been through economic downturn after the the, the great recession and and there was just a, a a lack of awareness they were kind of numb to you know what the opportunities could be and what's been great about this is as other components of all of our community development have come together it's just seen as Greg can tell you firsthand over the last two years is really a, a not a, you know invigoration beginning not just in economic development but also in kind of sense of place and pride and community. And I always hear this comment now, people say, man, the, you know, the town is changing. You can feel it. It's different. People are moving here. They want to be a part of this. And, and so that's not a measurable social impact in a way, but it, you know, it, it is in some ways as well. So th- that's how we, we evolved to this point. And, and that's how Greg and I started working together uh, on, the, on the next phase of how we measure uh, those metrics. Right. So some, some of the measurement obviously is very objective and, and data-driven, but there's also a qualitative component that you just spoke of as well. Just the feel of the community and the and the sense of place is hard to quantify. So, Steve, what does your social impact reporting typically look like? If if you know Greg came to you and and asked you to do some social impact reporting, 
for his fund. And, you know, I, I actually think that all of these opportunity zone funds should have something like this and, and outsource it to a firm such as yourself. What, what are they getting back in, in return and, and what are they able to show to investors? What does the report look like? What types of metrics are you, are you keeping tabs on? Well, you know, it, it, that's a, just like the other discussion we had about the evolution of guidance, there isn't a specific template that's been generated by the Treasury to say this is what a social impact report should be, right? So, so the best path that we've we found is, you know, we do a lot of work in the area of, as I mentioned earlier, kind of environmental restoration and, and permitting. And we work with a lot of federal agencies, EPA, Corps of Engineers, and Fish and Wildlife, and tribes, and local agencies. And we've developed over 20 years now doing this kind of a a, a template of our own, which is kind of establishing, I use the word baseline data. Well, that's already available. That's what the, that what's, what's in the original applications for, for opportunity zones. But just like environmental restoration, there's, a, there's a, a life to it. It doesn't happen in one year or even 10 years in some cases. And so what we do is we do um, that baseline data report. That's the first thing that we want to kick out. And we're just finishing that up for, for Marina Square. I went through that last week again with the the metrics that we're using. And then what we'll do is have that just, that's a, that's a report that says, here's where we started, right? Uh, the next step is what I call monitoring. And monitoring is just taking the temperature of progress. And it's not, not going to be a, a reflection of the final outcome, which frankly won't really be measured until after I'm gone from this earth. I mean, it's, it takes, it, there's additional benefits and tertiary outcomes that'll happen. But we can put it together and say, based upon the funding of this project and a 10-year zone life or fund life and um, how this project has its own construction uh, timeline and, and then eventually it's, it's part of the, the economy and the census tract and then the region, we can do monitoring to the point where we get towards the end of that 10-year period. We do a final report. We, do a, we, you know, we close up the permit, if you will, to use the analogy from um, the environmental side. We end up with a product that is multiple pieces. It's a baseline report. It's monitoring over a period of time, and that's measured and decided upon based upon the timeline of the project and when it goes to certain phases and construction and, um, and then, you know, if it's a residential occupancy, you know, measurements, et cetera. And then finally, at a certain point in the life of the, the fund, we do a final report and say, here's where you started and here's where you ended up um, based upon those metrics. So that's the best way to describe it. And we, we've created that template based upon what we think the uh, the government's looking for and investors are looking for and the public's looking for and what we know from our own experience. And, and we're not going to just stop at the, quote, border of the, the census tract. I mean, that doesn't make sense. We don't live in isolation from our, our jurisdictions or our regional community. We have to look at it from the standpoint of how the other census tracts that were qualified but not designated also had a, a, a benefit and how those metrics that we're using in the, in the opportunity zone that we're looking at can be applied to a, a greater area because otherwise we're, we're kind of ignoring the, the objective of this program in the first place, which is, is to reinvigorate these communities, not just small borders. I mean, census tracts can be pretty small, uh, you know, geographically. And so in this case, we, we're going to look at, um, we have two census tracts that were designated, two zones that look across the water at each other, across a, a body of water in the Puget Sound, and they're complementary, but because of their designations, the synthesis of their connection as, as jurisdictions and communities is going to increase substantially um, because of that, that infusion of capital in both places that makes them more connected as economies. And so those are the things that are important to look at, too, not just you know, a standalone measurement for one census tract based upon 
its existing data as a, and then, then its outcome as a zone, it's got to be looked at on a kind of a local and regional basis as well. And, and to Greg's point, a lot of what we bounce off of is providing affordable housing and lifestyle choices. And, you know, you, you could take a, a, a foot ferry, fast ferry from downtown Seattle to one of our communities in Kitsap County. And in 30 minutes, you can be in the national park um, or, you know, on a bike trail, on a hiking trail in five minutes or out your backyard. And so it really creates a, a wonderful um, connection to a, a lifestyle that has the kind of infrastructure that's, you know, being protected pretty effectively. Yeah, that's great. And I, I wanted to just kind of emphasize uh, economic development doesn't happen rigidly within the arbitrarily set borders of a census tract. There is spillover. So, you know, I, 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 and, I and I get questions sometimes. I, I can't tell you how many times I've gotten this question this year. Uh, a property owner will email me and he'll say, hey, my, my property is located right on the border. It's right across the street from this opportunity zone. Do I, is there any benefit? And I, and I have to tell them, well, unfortunately, no, in the sense that, you know, your, your property won't be eligible for, for direct opportunity zone benefit. But, you know, if you hold on to it long enough, there may be some, some spillover effect if the, if the adjacent opportunity zone uh, does, get, does get going and does receive some capital injection. I mean, th- th- that, th- there is some economic spillover that, that occurs. That, 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 was, that was kind of a point that I lifted out of uh, what, you were, what you were just saying there, Steve. Shifting gears now, Steve, what is your high-level view of the Opportunity Zones incentive? And then if you could zoom into the Bremerton project, and how does that view apply there? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, the, the one thing, and I want to, if, if, you know, to your audience to, to understand something that's so important is, is an Opportunity Zone is, just, is not a single stroke of lightning that, you know, comes out of heaven and, and turns you know, black and white into color, or, you know, it, it doesn't fix all your problems, even if it's a good zone and it's got some potential. It, it's really a partnership with other metrics in the community that are related to both economic and cultural and social uh, measurements. And, and, and to give you an example, uh, in, that, in the community we're speaking of in Bremerton, um, part of what we did was also lay the groundwork for some other important pieces. For example, right about the time we were just starting the Opportunity Zone project, we had just completed uh, a very successful project to establish a, a fast ferry system. Kind of think of you know, New York's water taxi system or the Bay Area. In fact, we work with those people to really get an understanding of how to, how to really make this a, a successful venture. So now Kitsap County, Bremerton, uh, about, about 150, 200 feet from where that first project that Greg is involved in, you can walk over and get on a, a fast ferry and be in downtown Seattle in less than 30 minutes. And that is a game changer, both in terms of, of lifestyle and economic growth, but also in optics in terms of being truly a connected part of, a, of downtown Seattle with a different lifestyle and a different cost of living benefit. Uh, and there's two other points in our county that are also connected in the same way to downtown Seattle that never were before. So that was an important piece. So I, I want to make that point that, that that's an example. There were other um, efforts in terms of redevelopment along shorelines, connecting environmental uh, projects with, with economic projects that kind of created a pattern for who we are. And that just fell right into this Marina Square project, which is an incredibly uh, valuable uh, asset to connecting um, kind of the downtown, what was once decayed urban core, to a revitalized boardwalk and waterfront and, and marina and, uh, and ferry system. There's you know, car ferries and fat foot ferries and uh, local connections. And so it's just a, a dance that has to take place, and you know it's important for people to know that it's not just 
a you know one size fits all opportunity zone answer for everything. It's really an important thing to step back and take a look at um, what else is part of that process that complements, and then it, they just build on one another, and the momentum it becomes almost you step back and watch it, and there you don't have to mm-hmm. nurture anymore. It's it's been cultivated and it, and it's off and running, and we're getting to that critical point I think in in, in this community. Um, and, and and Jimmy, if I could also you know speak to the idea that it's important to note that. This census tract is part of, as I mentioned earlier, multiple census tracts in the area. But if you measured some of the metrics that are part of the baseline data, some of them clearly show the, the qualification, the, the need, the, the, you know, the, the legitimate um, uh, criteria that are necessary to, to qualify a census tract to be a zone. But there are some that are aberrations, and, and that has to be taken into, into account, too, not just in the selection process that we went through, but in the measurement process. Um, and I'll give you an example of that is we're the census tract that is part of uh, the opportunity zone that, that is uh, inclusive of Marina Square in Bremerton is adjacent to a, uh, a community college across, across the highway. And next door to that is uh, a naval shipyard. Well, there, there's two pieces that are part of the measurement process. One is kind of jobs and job security, uh, and the other is, you know, level of education. Well, we might have housing stability issues for students. But we have a lot of people who have higher education because they're, they're going to college, you know. And so um, you have to take that into account, too. You just you can't measure, as in other places in this region, um, education level, for example. Um, and then job stability, you know, we, it's, it's federal employment. It's, it's, it's public jobs, um, but it's not the answer to everything. A lot of people commute into the area, and they don't live downtown, and there's lack of housing in the area around um, the federal facility. And so it's, it's hard to measure in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a truly um, consistent way with other census tracts how you would truly qualify uh, on, that, on that metric of, of employment. Because as I like mm-hmm. to say, you know, if, if, the, if the nation or the region even or Washington, Seattle, which is thriving, um, get an economic flu like 2008, Kitsap County just gets a head cold. We, you know, it's, we are somewhat insulated on the job side. Um, so uh, th- those are important th- measurements to, to understand as well. I, I was hoping to dovetail on something that, um, that uh, Steve just brought up. Uh, so, you know, opportunity zones are not uh, immune to demographic swings. And, and so at the end of the day, uh, where the property is, and the demographics surrounding the property, even if it's inclusive, even if you have a social, a positive social impact to the community, at the end of the day, this is about investment dollars because that's what this is all designed to do. And so I, I wouldn't want your listeners to think just because it meets a criteria that it just automatically means not only is it a good fund, but I'll get my return that they, they believe that they can hit. So we most people will believe and i particularly believe and my partners at sound west group believe and i'm i haven't asked steve but i believe he believes too we're either in the late stable stage um or at the top of the real estate market at this point and so when and if there are recessionary pressures or even a recession these programs because you got to remember these are 10-year programs and the vast majority of these are development programs so Aside from the fact that they have a positive social impact, how is the program going to evolve and how is it going to stabilize itself over a 10-year period of time? And so you have to look at the demographics around the program. And 
you know, in just a call to a point, um, Stephen mentioned the fast ferry system. And the reason why that's in place, or one of the big reasons why that's in place is, see, you have to look at the, the, the major city there, which is Seattle. And this is indicative of what happened in New York. This is indicative of what happened in San Francisco Bay Area. The same thing happened in the San Jose, California area or the Silicon Valley area when folks, the young executives are all being priced out of the market. And these areas all have the highest housing prices in the country, even areas like Austin, Texas. And it starts to create uh, an effect where folks are going farther and farther away from the downtown areas. So what you need is stabilizing forces from the demographic standpoint when these recessionary winds hit. And so I would uh, suggest strongly to your listeners to look for areas that have those core um, uh, th those core elements in place from a corporate standpoint, meaning just using Seattle as an example, you have Amazon and Microsoft, Starbucks and Boeing. Um, you have Expedia and Travelocity. And so a number of major international companies who really, even in a recession, are not going anywhere. Yet they continue to grow and the need for housing continues to go up. So even in a recession, what you'll find, and I think that's why Steve was saying that Bremerton or Kitsap County gets a, um, a head cold when, there's, when, uh, when, when somebody else, when the rest of the economy has the flu. So I, I, my major point is, um, and it's not necessarily to hawk or to sell our program, it's really to say, yes, measure, measuring, me, having metrics and measuring, very important. Positive social impact, very important. Socially responsible, very important. Tax initiatives and saving money on your taxes, very important. But at the end of the day, each one of these Opportunity Zone funds have to perform. And the only way they're going to perform is if the economics around the programs themselves actually come to pass and actually have traction, not for this year, not next year, but for the next 10 years. Right. I think that's a very good point. And frankly, the only way that you can even take advantage of the main tax incentive of the Opportunity Zone incentive, that elimination of capital gains, is if the investment produces a capital gain to begin with. So you want to make sure that uh, you, you definitely do your due diligence and uh, take into account a lot of the uh, the, the points that, that Steve and, and Greg have just brought up uh, when, when you're making an investment. If, if you are looking to roll over capital gains into an Opportunity Zone fund, those are very good points uh, to keep in mind. Steve, I want to get back to you for a minute here. So you were clearly involved with Opportunity Zones uh, from the very early going. Uh, I, I wanted to see if I could get your high-level thoughts on how the sausage was made exactly and is continuing to be made. And and by that, I mean, you know, in terms of the legislative process and and the zone selection process you've spoken to already a little bit, and, 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 and but I also want to get your thoughts on IRS rulemaking as well. And just just if you can give me your, your thoughts on, on, on what's happening and, and what, what has happened. Well, Jimmy, thanks. That's a, that's an interesting question because it's, it's, I, I think I've surmised and concluded some things and I might not be hundred percent accurate, but I think I'm pretty close because I wasn't in the room when these things were happening. Uh, but, but just for, for background, I, I've worked in the beltway. I worked for the Senate majority leader uh, years ago. Um, and have had a lot of experience in national politics and policy and started a public policy think tank years ago. So kind of been a part of this, you know, this process of sausage making. And here's my sense of when, when, when the president signed the Jobs and Tax Act uh, 
um, you know, 2017, and then Congress went home for Christmas and by then. And now all of a sudden you got all these people in the Department of Treasury who are who have when they wake up on January 1st, they have hordes of of interested investors and and attorneys and 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 communities at, at the gates with pitchforks saying, tell you know, what do we do? What do we go with this? And we need information and. Um, and so there was a lot of pressure. And so a lot of folks independently were trying to formulate in their own minds based upon the best available information. For example, we called upon what we thought was one of the best uh, tax attorneys in the country to give us uh, guidance on kind of reading the tea leaves. Where is this going to go? And, and the, the outcome from, for, for the project that Greg's working on was just stay in the fairway. Don't, don't try to find any, you know, any, anything on the edge and the rough that might be attractive. Just stay down the middle and uh, as the guidance evolves, you'll be you'll be safe. Um, and so when the first guidance came out, what I saw from that was uh, kind of a we're not sure what we're going to do. We're trying to address the, the the foundational questions the best we can, and we're going to not tell you that these are binding, but we're going to tell you that if you use this guidance here, as long as you use the spirit of what you see the letter here, you're not going to be in trouble with us. And for a lot of you know people that that we're trying to attract as private equity investors, that still wasn't a really comforting uh, place to be. It was a okay, we, we need more certainty. And my sense was that honestly, I don't think anybody really thought about the guidance until it just plopped on their desk in early Jan in 2018, and they realized there was incredible pressure to perform. And this is something that you know normally might have taken a couple of years to do with the process of developing the legislation. That was my experience in Washington. In this case, it happened pretty quickly. Even though it had been conceptually discussed and, and had been part of ongoing discussions among um, lawmakers and Congress, um, you know, bipartisan Democrats and Republicans, uh, starting in kind of 2014-15, it kind of took off after 2016. And when it landed quickly, there just wasn't anybody prepared to 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 have set up the the mechanisms to pro provide the guidance that was necessary. And so my sense is watching all this evolve over time, especially uh, as the second set of guidance came out, was I can almost see the learning and the discussing among the colleagues in, in Treasury going on with their counsel, trying to get their hands around, which is if you read the legislation, it's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. It just doesn't tell you anything about what you can or can't do or how to implement it, you know. But it's more of a policy statement than it is a a, a specific uh, regulatory guidance, and so that's that's the, the struggle. And and the problem is, and Greg is probably the one that has to endure most of the challenge here. Is you know it's taken about a two-year delay to get where we should have been two years ago with this legislation. We should have been able to start with um, the product, if you will, with the certainty that when we talk to investors and um, and the communities that we're working in, that we we know where this is going to end up. And I think that the path is narrowing, there's more certainty, but I don't see it there yet. It's just getting really close. Yeah, I agree. We are getting close, but it's, it's, we're not quite there yet. Uh, Greg, I want to I turn back to you now. Uh, so how, how has it been going with OzFund 1? It, it sounds like, uh, I believe you, you spoke at the top of the show about how you're actually going to uh, close the fund pretty soon because you're, you're close to hitting your capital raising targets. And, and do you have uh, plans for OzFund 2 and, and 3 and beyond? Maybe you can tell us some of your, some of your future plans. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, and and um, I couldn't agree more with uh, Steve's points and especially his last point as far as um, really the catch up in the industry and investors feeling comfortable 
uh, with Treasury and, and the guidance that's out there now. Um, and, and so we've been a part of that. We were early adopters. We were one of the first in the marketplace. And as I mentioned earlier, we took a very academic approach to uh, bringing out our first product and developing the entire platform. Um, but as you'd mentioned, um, as far as the equity raising on our first program, uh, we actually launched um, officially the memorandum came out at the end of February, so let's say March March 1st. Um, but there, we really couldn't sell the program until there was clear guidance, and that guidance really didn't come out until uh, April, and it takes some time for the learning curve. And so really May is when we started raising equity in any type of earnest fashion. Um, and so our offering is a $50 million offering, and uh, we're about 18 to $20 million away from hitting that. And the numbers are, are growing exponentially every month with our raise. So we're on target uh, right now uh, it, for uh, an end of the year close, but it may tip into uh, early uh, January as far as uh, closing out the fund. So there's definitely some opportunity there for investors um, still, still available. And which actually brings up another point is, as far as the exclusion, there tends to be this feeling that there's a mad rush to get the money in the door by the end of the year. Um, and that's true from the standpoint of maximizing your opportunity zone benefit. But as we've discussed uh, on numerous occasions on this podcast, um, you know, getting into the right program with the right dynamics, with the right demographic um, uh, demographics to uh, foster success in the program is much more important than the 5% additional um, tax benefit you may get to rush to make a decision in 2019. And so we've actually seen, uh, we, ha we have not seen actually much uh, in the way of, um, uh, of folks feeling that they're pressured to get the money in by the end of the year. Um, it's, it's probably a natural effect, <laughs> but um, to the investment community's um, credit, uh, most people are are really doing their due diligence, which I actually applaud. So um, we don't think there's going to be much of a downturn in the equity racing going into 2020 because the industry is understanding that a good program is going to perform. And uh, whether it's at a 10% step up or 15% step up, that really is not going to make or break the program or that particular investor's um, tax initiative. Um, so we, we think we're going to be able to close this out most likely by the end of the year or early January. And uh, with the uh, success of our Opportunity Zone 1 platform and now being recognized nationally as a, a best-in-class uh, platform and program, we're going to take that uh, same overlay and apply it to our next program. So we, we're in uh, the process now of bringing out um, uh, what we're going to call Oz2 and Oz3 and most likely an Oz4 uh, in the near future. And really, they're going to have the same uh, dynamics as Oz1 in the sense of their local communities, they're around the Bremerton area, which is our expertise. In Kitsap County, we're in discussions right now um, with a substantial group um, for a master plan in, in, uh, in, a, in a town uh, just across um, our water called Port Orchard, which has the same dynamics and demographics as Bremerton. And then also uh, assemblage of programs, or sorry, assemblage of properties in Bremerton that really have the same demographic dynamics of Marina Square, which is in Oz 1. So we're really excited of, you know, we've, we've gone through the headaches and, and the heartaches of 
what we call Oz1 over the last you know, year, year and a half of building the platform. The traction is there. We're now being recognized nationally as a best-in-class platform and program. And it's just simply finding that same, um, th- that same recipe and overlaying into our next programs. And we're very happy to say that you know, right under our noses in, in Bremerton, Washington, um, we actually have those uh, assemblage of properties that we can launch our next program. So I would look for early um, to mid-2020 for our next offerings. Well, that's that's great, Greg, and uh, congratulations on the current fund offering. It seems to be going well. The capital raising component to it, and and best of luck to you in uh, getting Oz Fund two, three, and maybe even four off the ground in the coming year. Before we go today, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and Sound West? And and Steve, you can chime in as well and and tell us where uh, our listeners can go to learn more about you and the Waterman Group. Uh, certainly, Jimmy. Um, for Sound West, um, our um, website is soundwestozfunds.com. So soundwest and then ozfunds.com. And you'll find all the information on our program and, and our platform. In fact, you can even see the um, construction progress of our latest uh, Oz Fund, one called the Marina Square Project in Bremerton. Yeah, and Jimmy, I, I um, you know, I'm going to just give you my email address, and then and that links to to our, our sites as well, and I can point you in the right direction if you're interested. And that is Steve, S T E V E at Waterman, M P Michael Paul, WatermanMP.com. So Steve at WatermanMP.com is where I live, uh, uh, and look forward to hearing any uh, questions or helping anybody find a path to doing what we're doing. And uh, it's exciting to be a part of this. Uh, we're thankful that. Uh, People like SoundWest and, and, and Greg have stepped into the fray and, and taken this on. And, um, you know, I only see it from the perspective locally here of what we're doing. I don't know what else is happening to the degree that you do, Jimmy, around the country. I see some of it, but we're real excited about what the, the, the future ahead lays for us. So we're excited. Perfect. I'm, I'm excited as well. And I, and I know that uh, my listeners are as well. And for our listeners out there, I'll have show notes on the Opportunity Zones database website for today's episode. And you can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And there you'll find links to all of the resources that Greg, Steve, and I discussed on today's show. Greg and Steve, thanks for the time today. This has been great. Thank you very much, Jimmy. Yeah, Jimmy, thanks for the time. We appreciate it and and look forward to hearing more from uh, our colleagues around the country that are working with you as well. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.